Welcome to the American Vandal from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Matt Siebel. Almost 10 years ago, a professor recruited two graduating seniors from the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern University to take a road trip. For three months, they traveled the United States in a minivan under the ambiguous charge of reporting upon what it meant to be American in the second decade of the 21st century. Among the inspirations for their trip was an itinerant journalist from a previous era, Mark Twain, and they intentionally sought out places and sources related to Twain's career, writings, and historical reputation. Last year, they published a book based upon these travels, both reporting they did directly from the road and reflecting upon how the trip shaped their perspective on the years that followed. In this episode, I speak with the authors of Genus Americanus about the book, about travel, about the changing role of the journalist from Twain's time to our own, and much more. Lauren Giglioni is now Professor Emeritus of Journalism at Northwestern. Prior to becoming a journalism educator, he was the owner and editor of the Southbridge Evening News and president of the American Society of Newspaper Editors. Alyssa Karras is Associate Director of Audience Development at Vanity Fair, where she has also served as a web producer and special projects editor. Dan Tham is a news producer at CNN's Pacific Headquarters in Hong Kong. They remain friends and collaborators. For more about their book in this episode, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash genus americanus. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Genus Americanus isn't really a book about Mark Twain. But one of the things about Twain that it does evocatively capture is his itinerancy, his urge to travel. Even with the assistance of planes and automobiles, it is no small feat to cover the territory that Twain covered, uh, even domestically. And only a tiny minority of Americans, even today, have traversed the country as thoroughly as Twain did and as y'all did. But while this urge to travel was something that never left him, he was also ambivalent about it. He famously wrote things like travel is fatal to prejudice, but he was also often trying and failing to avoid having to go back out on the road again. And he relished making fun of the apparatus and the infrastructure for U.S. travel, the trains, the roads, the stagecoaches, the hotels, the boarding houses, et cetera, et cetera. So I wanted to start by asking what you took away from living for a while in this state of itinerancy. Should I? Wow, that that's a great question. Yeah, you start, Lauren. I took away that is exhausting when you're trying to interview people each day and then get on the road and travel hundreds of miles and then maybe have another interview before you go to bed. It's uh, a lot of work. And for Dan and, and Alyssa, who are photographing, and then especially Dan, who is doing these videos along the way, I think at least 10 a week, I can't even imagine how many, how many hours he was putting in. The other thing is... Uh, 
So I've been to all 50 states, and I think Twain went to more than 40 of the states in the United States. For me, it was going back to places that were important to me in my life in some cases, or just places I had known. But I really enjoyed the sort of Alyssa and Dan experiencing places for the first time, and you know, places that I loved. Uh, New Orleans, for example. I'm interested in their reactions to that question. The experience of sort of living out of a van for you know, three months is actually really hard, I think, for people to understand if you haven't done it. I think towards the end, you just feel really unmoored. There's not a couch that you're sitting on that you're not like, have 45,000 other people sat in this couch? Like, how many people have slept in this hotel bed? Like, you just really have no sense of belonging, I guess, or, or place. And I think that really makes the interviews that you do all that much more important. And, and you're like, just sort of like searching for a connection. At least, at least that's how I felt because you're so, you know, out of your element. You really have to get a feel for a place immediately. And, and I don't mean to sound like all woo woo, but you, you just like get a, a feeling or like a vibe or like something when you, you walk into a new city or, a new building, um, and I experienced that in a way that that I really never had. It was almost like intuitive. It was it was very strange. That idea that by losing a kind of sense of your own place and identity and a comfort with your own relationship to the world, that increases perhaps your capacity to understand the subjects, your interviews, the people around you. I think that's a really interesting observation and one that that definitely reminds me of Twain in some ways, right? The, here's, here's a, I, I have sometimes jokingly described him as a decade-long couch surfer, right? Because <laughs> most of the 1860s, he didn't stay very in very long in one place. For the most part, he was itinerant, a nomad, right? Somebody who was oftentimes depending on friends and acquaintances to put him up for a few nights, who was, uh, you know, leaving town in a hurry and, uh, you know, going and, and living in a, a remote mining uh, encampment for a while. And that doesn't even include the period where he, his job as a steamboat pilot was one that did not have a, a, a consistent place to, to lay his head down at night, right? And so I think that that idea that at this very formative time in, in Twain's career, he was without a place and certainly he felt as though he did not have a, a, a clear identity or purpose and you know, that oftentimes fueled his depression during this period. But it also may have made him a better journalist, a better writer, a better observer of human conditions. And certainly a lot of the things that he saw in San Francisco, in Virginia City, the ways in which he understood the people in those places stayed with him throughout his life, right? And so I love that idea that being unmoored has a great deal of personal discomfort, but it might create a relationship to others that has a sort of lasting effect on one's worldview. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I, I had a really hard time, I think, after the trip ended and trying to integrate back into like a world where people wake up in the same place and go to bed at the same place and like sit at the dinner table. It was it was very difficult. Yeah, I agree, I agree with Alyssa. It was something Alyssa said was really true is that it was really hard to communicate to 
friends and family what this experience was like, just because yeah, you are so unmoored and you try to find some sort of routine, but you, you know, you inevitably put on a lot of weight because you're not exercising and just driving all the time. And it's hard to kind of create any sort of habits while you're on the road. So I feel like you're kind of more open to or attuned to kind of novelty and, and, and newness. Also just like the chances that we got to enjoy home cooked meals or to stay at, you know, the houses of friends and stuff that became all the more valuable and, and sort of meaningful. Because really the majority of the time we, we were on a budget, so we had to stay in some scary motels. <laughs> That's what I was like. That's very Twainian of that scary. time as well, yeah. Some of them were scary. <laughs> yeah, we finally remember uh, a hotel in uh, Cleveland. It was rated the filthiest hotel in America. Don't stay here. But we stayed there. Oh, my God. I was doing all the hotel booking, and, you know, I was – 22 and I'm thinking like oh my god what a deal this is only $40 a night but like there's a reason hotels are only $40 a night. I, I just want to add one thing thinking about Twain's experience thank god he went to the west because you know he was a bigoted boy candidly he began to learn a lot of things on the road about Chinese Americans and he didn't learn enough about Native Americans but certainly the experiences in the West broadened him and diminished his ignorance and we were a phrase that I like a lot and and Dan kids me about you know the trip really diminished my ignorance about a whole variety of kinds of people experiences that they've had and I'd never really interviewed somebody who was transgender about their lives and that was uh, eye-opening for me and even on issues of race where i felt okay you know i taught at a historically black college in mississippi for a summer so i had some experience but still a sort of continuing notion that race issues may they may have gotten better but they're still so unsolved and difficult for this country there's a recent book by swan sue that makes you know a version of the argument you just summarized which is twain was only able to recognize his own bigotedness towards people of color in missouri and along the mississippi river after he saw how chinese immigrants were treated in san francisco that was the kind of eureka moment for him that capacity uh, that is is bred by travel right to recognize discrimination prejudice right systemic racism and then have to reflect back on the societies in which you came from and ask whether they are any better or any different i think is is a really powerful way of reading a lot of twain's work all the way up to things like following the equator when he's you know traveling around the world and he's excellent sometimes at recognizing systemic racism in other places, particularly towards indigenous peoples, but not so good about doing it with Native Americans in North America. I surmise that this trip doesn't probably seem all that long ago for Lauren, but I would guess for Alyssa and Dan, given that this has come at a conventionally very formative and transitional time in your lives. It does probably seem quite a while ago. And so you've been spending some time recently. I know you recently did a, an interview at the Twain House in Hartford. So you've been doing some sort of promotional work for the book recently, placing you back in the sort of mindset of that time. And I was wondering what seems different about that experience or formative with the perspective of a few years in new 
fresh, different careers. When the book was finally going to get published, I found it a bit of a struggle to remember everything, you know, uh, and to like put myself back in that sort of mindset of being on the road for three months and, and talking to all these people. But I guess like what's kind of resonated in the past few years with the kind of increased visibility of identity politics, whether that's the Black Lives Matter movement or white nationalism or the protests that are going on regarding anti-Asian racism, it reminds me that what we were doing 10 years ago is, is still really kind of relevant today. And, and the lessons that we learned from 10 years ago could be applied to our moment as well. It was nice to be able to, to look back 10 years ago and see some signs of progress. For example, you know, when we took the trip, gay marriage wasn't legal. And that was one nice thing to be able to think about like, okay, this has really changed. We talked to a transgender activist in Boston some of those conversation points about, you know, how the media could be so disrespectful towards transgender people. I don't mean to suggest that those are gone, but some of those things have improved a little bit, I think, in the eyes of mainstream America. We've started to move the needle a tiny bit. It's impossible to overstate how formative this trip was for me as, you know, as a young person. So being taken back there, you know, almost 10 years ago was to ask myself, how have I changed? Because it's not something that you can, you know, close the van door and be like, well, that's done. I mean, it takes like years to try to understand. As you said, Lauren, one of the clear themes that develops over the course of the book is you seeing aspects of American life that were relatively familiar, places that were familiar to you, histories and legacies that were somewhat familiar to you, sometimes your own family history, your own career, but seeing those things afresh in part because you saw Alyssa and Dan experiencing them. That sort of sympathetic experience of living in a van with two young people, what has sort of been the sort of durable takeaways for you? My own ignorance about, and I think many Americans' ignorance about Native Americans or indigenous peoples, just by uh, chance, you know, we were driving in Kansas toward Topeka to go to the Brown versus Board of Education Museum to look at an exhibit by Mexican-American artist, and there was a sign for the Kickapoo Reservation, and we, okay, turned left and went to the Kickapoo Reservation. And uh, so it happened that we ran into a, a head of the, you know, the tribal council who was very generous with his time and took us to the school, the Native American school, which reminded us that in an earlier era, the church-sponsored uh, and federal government-sponsored schools were terrible. They were trying to erase the culture of Native Americans, you know, cut the braids of kids and uh, get rid of their Native names and their religion, etc get rid of their culture. And uh, there is still erasure going on or an effort to assimilate Native Americans away. You know, I found that very, uh, that experience um, kind of a spur to try to teach courses where the students were not only reporting on Native Americans Chicago, but uh, recording their oral, oral histories. And they're now at the Newberry Library. And so it was influential in my career. It opened me up to a whole 
variety of experiences at Northwestern University in terms of connecting to native communities, taking students out to reservations uh, or home to tribes that are very active in Chicago. I think also just thinking about, you know, when Black, Black Lives Matter came along because of, not because of, but in time with the George Floyd terrible killing, I, I was reminded that while there is visibility of, of what's happened to African Americans throughout their history, for Asian Americans and Native Americans we interviewed, and the, there hasn't been as much exposure and but the racism, I think, is as profound as it is with uh, African-Americans. You mentioned the visibility of Black Lives Matter that have happened in the period since you took the trip. Uh, and you mentioned this in the final chapter, right, that just before the book came out, we had the, the George Floyd protest and, uh, you know, kind of reawakening of a civil rights movement that in many ways begins in Ferguson, one of the places you visited. I, I went to school in St. Louis. In fact, one of the people you interviewed, Gerald Early, was the director of my senior thesis in American Studies. Wow. That part of the book, you know, was something that I took a, a special interest in. But I also think, as you note, much as it was in Twain's time, St. Louis was, uh, you know, a kind of synecdoche for America. And there's a recent book by Walter Johnson, The Broken Heart of America, that sort of makes, makes this case very well. In Twain's time, St. Louis contained all of the incongruencies, good and bad, about American life. And in many ways, it still does. And so I'm sure that having looked closely at the legacy of systemic racism, police violence, the Michael Brown killing, the Ferguson riots, all of that, that you, you were sort of following very close on the footsteps of and feeling the tensions that had been created in St. Louis must have been very valuable to you in the last year as you saw those tensions made visible all across the country. What did you learn in St. Louis, right? What did you learn in Ferguson? In what ways did the trip become part of your understanding of this very volatile, but also potentially epochal year in American history? Um, I would say that one thing that feels important to me to mention is that it's not necessarily a resurgence. I, I think that these tensions and these issues and these emotions and, and these actual systemic problems have always been there. I think that in the last couple of years, white Americans in particular have been unable to avoid it. I think that's an important distinction that, that this is not new. It's hundreds of years in the making um, and that uh, we just really could not ignore it as, as white people, to be frank, any, any longer. I think that's an excellent answer, yeah. That's a really good answer. I don't know if I could. I don't know if I have anything to add to that besides we've, you know, we visited uh, Money, Mississippi where, where Emmett Till was murdered. Mm -hmm. We visited Laramie, Wyoming, where where Matthew Shepard was murdered. Mm -hmm. And I, I guess that for me underscored that it, it's true that the, this sort of like animus towards 
people who are deemed other has, has really always been there, it leads to violence, leads to death. And what we saw in the last few years, you know, is not really anything new. It's just maybe more attention has been given it than ever before. I, I want to mention two things. One, sort of following up on what Dan was saying, we also went to Marion, Indiana, which was the site of the last lynching in the North, and uh, interviewed a couple of high school students. And one of the, the points they made was that the town is not willing to put up a plaque or acknowledge its history because people, families still live with it. They're descendants of people who were involved in the lynching or are still in Marion. And uh, I think there's a kind of guilt and shame uh, that exists around our history. And the closer you get to, you know, the lynchings and the other terrible things that happened, the more reluctant people are to acknowledge it. When we spoke at the Mark Twain house, somebody asked a question and I couldn't remember this. So I want to, I do remember it now. Question was, did you have any experiences with people who you know were not interested in change or who were somewhat resistant to the ideas that you represent, so to speak? One of the things that I was trying to do was find Gilioni's people with my last name in the country. There aren't many of them. You know, we interviewed a, a truck driver, we interviewed a man in San Francisco who had a, his own business, a fleet of trucks. We interviewed a woman uh, in St. Louis who was married to a Gilioni, and she said, you ought to interview my son because he's the family historian. So we went to Deacon Gilioni, and, you know, he expressed the views of the Catholic Church on women and leadership positions and gays and lesbians, and these positions are not unknown, but it was hard for us to hear those views. They seemed sort of out of place in America. The, the notion that women could not assume priest position, for example. And we, indeed, we interviewed a woman in Chicago who is a priest, not officially, but there are now women who are organized to appoint priests. And uh, his attitudes toward gays and lesbians seem so out of touch with reality in America and in around, around the world, frankly. I think it was disturbing to all of us. I just thought we should mention it. Yeah, and I think it's also important to remember that we took the trip before Donald Trump assumed the presidency. Maybe we had seen some of the seeds of that, you know, certainly driving through small towns in America, you saw that economic desperation. So I think his rise to power, I don't want to speak for Lauren and Dan, but seemed to shock me a little bit less than many of my, you know, very East Coast peers. But I, I think the level of vitriol that we saw afterwards still surprised even me a little bit, which it shouldn't because we were so deep in American history and we know that it, it has been violent, it has been hateful. As Dan mentioned, any opportunity that a, a large group can find to create an other, uh, they tend to take even though I had that context and I knew that this is possible and, and this has happened before, it, it was still shocking. For, for a solid year or two after the 2016 election, by far the most common question I got anytime I, I did a talk or an interview about Twain was what would, what would Twain think of Donald Trump? It's an impossible, silly question in many ways, but 
I, I would agree with Alyssa's suggestion that the seeds of this have always been there and there have been Trumps in America for a long time. And I don't think anything about Trump's election or his presidency would have really surprised Mark Twain. In fact, it was something that seemed the natural extension of what he saw happening with the Roosevelt administration in the latter part of his life. That sense that this was always there, it just was made visible in new ways and maybe healthy ways in the long run, uh, if it does uh, sort of force us to reckon with the scars that run very deep and all all the way back to Mark Twain's life and, and to even before Mark Twain's life. Lauren, your answer about visiting Giglioni's, is that yes, how I pronounce that, it? That, I pronounce that's that right? as good as you're going to get. <laughs> Giuliani's in St. Louis, it brings me to something I, I definitely wanted to ask uh, you about. One of the things I took away from this book is that you are a, a, a master of the interview. And not only that, you are an advocate for the interview, right? that you clearly believe that the skill, process, and technique of interviewing people is a key part of the, the journalist, the reporter's craft, and something that yields very meaningful results. I was hoping you would talk a little bit about this. This is somewhat ironic, given your self-described Twainiac status. You know, Twain was certainly himself a, a, you know, a reporter. He had done that work. He had some of those skills, but he also poked fun at the interview. In fact, the, you know, his conversation with an interviewer uh, sketch is, is the thing that got Hal Holbrook started. I was wondering if you could sort of talk about what it is about this particular genre or technique of reporting that has sort of led you to develop it, to teach it, to feel as though it is such an important craft for journalists, but also for the readers, right? What it, what does it yield for the people who consume those inter interviews? I was just listening to people talk about what's going on in the border, the southern border in Texas. A reporter made the point in reaction to various people on the left and right talking about what it was happening on the border. You know, they weren't on the border, but they had very strong views about what was happening on the border, that it was a crisis or it wasn't a crisis and so on. I was just struck by, you know, this, this reporter saying humbly, well, you know, I'm here. Let me tell you what's going on. That sense of immediacy that you get from actually being in the place. And place is important. I think that's one thing. You know, why I take students out to a reservation in Wisconsin before they get into this oral history course is because I want them to experience the values that are in the place that they go to, you know, the, the respect for the land. There is a, for, there's a, a forest that this is kept by this tribe. They have their mill and so on. They just make sure that there are always trees there. The whole value system that's represented. I think you can only get certain things about people by going to where they are and experiencing their lives. I just think, you, you know, you need to have humility you can only be empathetic up to a point. You, you know, as a, as a, as a white male uh, who's almost 80 years old, I can't experience the African-American experience and I can't experience Native American experience, really. And I know that. But as close as I'm going to get is to go out and to be with them and talk with them and try to convey what, 
what I'm seeing and feeling and experiencing. It was uh, such a masterclass for Alyssa and I to observe Lauren interview everyone. Um, and we're both journalism students, but I mean, for myself, like I learned the most on this trip of my entire four years at Northwestern. You know, there's some things that I picked up from watching Lauren interview. For instance, after an interview, he would ask Alyssa and I if we had any questions of the subject. And now I do that too. Whenever I conduct an interview, I ask my cameraman or or whoever else is with me if they have any other questions. It's just kind of like, you know, bringing everyone in, letting everyone have a seat at the table and being such an empathetic person that is able to get all these people that we talked to on this trip to really open up to us and share things that were sometimes really painful, but they clearly thought that they were in good hands. Yeah, Lauren has always had a sincere commitment to get things right. Sometimes it would drive Dan and I crazy because he would be like, how tall is this room? And he would be like counting stairs or like how many photographs are on the wall? And we'd be like, oh my God, we need to drive like a hundred miles today. We need to get going. But he also was very diligent about following up with people and asking them, did I get this right? That's something that has also stayed with me that as reporters or journalists or writers, like you really do have a responsibility to these people and you should not be speaking for them. You should be giving them a voice. It's such a, a wonderful representation of the challenge of your profession. On the one hand, there is always a pressure, right? Whether it's a pressure to get in the car and drive 100 miles, whether it's a deadline that's hanging over you, there, there's always a time pressure for the journalist that then is in tension with the desire to get it right, to be meticulous, to tell the whole story, to represent people's perspectives accurately. How have you taken the, the recognition of that tension that clearly you got through this trip and processed it, used it as you've started your own careers in you know different venues? Writing a, a book and working on papers and websites for Northwestern is, I'm sure, very different from working for Vanity Fair and CNN. So how have you sort of taken some of the things you learned from this trip and applied them in your new jobs? Mm, that's a good question. I think Lauren being here is going to <laughs> affect your answers, I, I expect, but. No, no, I mean, definitely the, the importance of getting it right. But you know what, it was a, on so many levels so important to travel with Lauren, but he also had has so much experience operating in this world of newspapers and in the media and you know he has so many contacts and so many former colleagues and students um but we really got a good look at how all of these people come together to talk about the news and we talked with a lot of interview subjects about you know how they had been covered in the media so for example i, I mentioned the transgender activist gunner scott whom we interviewed in boston it had been such a terrible relationship with the media where you're really antagonized so i think i took that idea with me as I began my career that what might be just like a turn of phrase for me has real life implications, not for just individuals, but for entire groups of people. And I think also being on the ground and you really have to look someone in the eye when you interview them. So they're not just a name, you know, it's not just so-and-so said this. It's like, I sat with this person. And there is, again, that responsibility to be accurate and be truthful and, and get it right. I think I kind of left the trip feeling really 
more optimistic about people's willingness to open up if, if you kind of, you know, meet them halfway. And we, we didn't really get rejected that much when we tried to approach an interview. I think most everyone was kind of thirsting to share their story. So just the fact that we, you know, had an open ear and we wanted to hear what they had to say, I think that's that's kind of applied throughout my career at CNN so far too, I think. You're traveling the way we were traveling. It's very hard to feel at the end of an interview, which may have taken an hour or an hour and 15 minutes, that you've really captured the person. I felt frequently that we needed to spend more time with that person. And indeed, as you know from the book, between 2012 and 2016, I went back and re-interviewed a number of people where I've just felt we had to spend more time with this person or added another interview to add depth. And I remember one interview that we did, uh, that Alyssa did, it was wrote up with Merlene Davis and uh, a columnist in the Lexington, Kentucky paper, African-American woman who talked movingly about her experience. But when she retired, she was interviewed by a fellow member of staff for uh, an oral history collection at the University of Kentucky. And she told a story about getting, uh, she got a lot of uh, hate letters, but one said, we know where your daughter is and maybe she needs to become a woman. And it was a very threatening letter. And she went to, Merlene went to her editor who said, you ought to take this to the police. And she did, and a white officer came out to her house, and uh, and he read the letter, and he said, well, you know, I I agree with uh, pretty much of what this uh, person is saying in the letter. And she came away from that experience, you know, saying, oh, I'll never go to the police again with what is sent to me, the threatening letters I get. That's a story which tells so much about, you know, the, what she experienced as an African-American columnist. And we didn't get it. You know, we didn't get that. And uh, we added it at the end of the book. But just as an example, of, we, we know we didn't get the full stories of people. And as interviewers, even when we try to do our best, we really have to have humility about what we're, what we're doing. Are we really capturing it? I'm not sure we're capturing what people are about sometimes. Yeah, I, I think about that a lot, too. All, all of the things that, you know, people don't or won't share for, for many different reasons. Mediation is hard. And, and, and being the personification of mediation is a very, you know, very serious responsibility. You, you become the embodiment of all of those suspicions, all of those betrayals. Uh, all of those misrepresentations that every every one of us feels, right? Every one of us feels that some aspect of our life, whether personally or our families, our identities, our peer groups have, have been misrepresented at some point. It may be something as relatively trivial as being a member of uh, Gen X or a millennial or a baby boomer, right? And that you have been betrayed in some way by the media's stereotypes. Or it may be as significant as your family member was, uh, you know, unjustly accused. Everybody's carrying with them some sort of baggage when it comes to what they've seen on TV, read in the newspaper. And as a journalist, you become the personification of that. And I'm not sure that that stigma has ever been any greater than it is now. Genius Americanus is a travel book first and foremost. 
And like most travel books, the narrative threads that hold it together, aside from the progress of the trip itself, are overlapping and intertwined and sometimes only partially visible. But among the threads that I felt was important to all three of you, but which only surfaces intermittently in the narrative, is the consideration of the contemporary state of journalism, and especially print journalism. On the one hand, you are loosely following in the footsteps of one of the most important figures in the history of the American press, somebody whose career is inseparable from the rapid development and expansion of the infrastructure of the fourth estate. Part of what made Twain's itinerancy possible was this growth industry that always desperately needed reporters, editors, typesetters, printers, right? Once he had acquired even the rudimentary skills of that profession, as he did very early in his life, getting a job with a newspaper was pretty much assured wherever he went. It was just a matter of showing up. During your travels, on the other hand, you came across a fair amount of evidence that this infrastructure is crumbling. Small town papers are closing, laying off staff, reconceiving of themselves as something more like local promotional newsletters. The competition for positions, as, as you very well know, in newsrooms of surviving publications and news organizations is fierce. And the working conditions are not always great, especially at the entry level. In the book, much of this is subtext. But I was hoping that you would talk a little bit today about what you think the future of print journalism is, given the state of affairs that you witnessed during your trip and that you have been embedded in ever since. And in the case of Lauren, was embedded in for many decades before that. Well, there's a book to answer that question. Actually, Margaret Sullivan wrote a book recently about local journalism, and she's somebody we interviewed when she was editor of the Buffalo paper that she became ombudsman of the New York Times and was covering media for the Washington Post. We visited Southbridge, Massachusetts, where I put out a dinky daily for 26 years, and uh, the paper is no longer a daily. It's a week weekly, and uh, it's sad. Uh, I, I don't think the editor for the paper, there is an editor in Southbridge. He's from another, I, I believe he's in New Hampshire in another state, editing a, a whole group of the papers that are owned by this one company. Uh, you know, even metropolitan papers like the Chicago Tribune, when they're taken over by these non-journalism companies, these investment companies, that are, their only goal is essentially to milk them for whatever profit they can get out of them. There's no journalistic goal. There's no higher purpose. It's very sad because for me, journalism is a calling. You know, it's what I always wanted to do. I wanted to put out my own paper. So to see this happening, it's discouraging. And for me, as a journalism educator, it raised ethical questions about what do we do? Do we encourage people to go into this field? I mean, Dan and Alyssa are extremely successful. They're very bright. And so they have careers that I think are fine. But, you know, the print journalists, there used to be a ladder. I remember hiring young reporters who might only stay uh, nine months or so, but then would go on to a larger paper. And I'm thinking of Ray Hernandez lined up at the New York Times as investigative reporter in Washington, D.C. 
you know, I, I felt that it was a kind of calling to even to put out a small paper because we were like a graduate school of journalism. We were important in the food chain, if you will, of, of journalism. We trained people who never went to journalism school. Most of the people we hired never had that luxury. I never went to journalism school, actually. I once did a survey uh, evaluating the daily uh, newspapers of New England. It turned out to be about a 380-page book. And I went back recently and looked at the smaller papers in that group. About 100 and, there were over 100 dailies in New England. Most of the smallest papers, you know, like the smallest dozen, are no longer daily newspapers. So these, these communities are not being served. I mean, we used to have a reporter go to the courts, go to the police station, because the police station wouldn't give you the information over the telephone. So unless you were, if you were going to be lazy, you weren't going to get it. You had to send a reporter to the police station to find out what was going on in the town. There aren't reporters doing that now in these towns. So the community is not getting really essential information. And we used to be, you know, fairly um, aggressive about, I remember we sent somebody to an education school committee meeting and they said, uh, well, you can't go, we need to be an executive session for this. And uh, we took them to court. There's a, you can see, Gilioni versus uh, Southbridge School Committee. We lost the case, but the point was that the paper in town was an advocate for full information about what was happening in government. Who's playing that role now? I don't know. It's certainly not uh, the local newspaper because it doesn't have the resources or the agenda. It's very concerning to me. I want to uh, hear from Dan and Alyssa on this subject who may see it differently, but I, I wanted to follow up on Lauren's point by, by making the Twain connection. Twain was the shoe leather beat reporter at one point in his career. He hated it. To some extent, he climbed the ladder, as you described. He was only uh, in that role for uh, about, you know, about a year or so. But he went to the courts in San Francisco. He went to the, you know, police station. He went to the theater district. He circumvented the city on foot every day reporting the news. And, and he found that tedious and exhausting. But there's no doubt that it made a significant impact on him and many of the sort of systems of belief about power right, and about the function of government and about the relationships to of institutions to individuals right, you can trace back to that period in time where he was seeing these things play out in detail at the uh, municipal level I don't always agree with you know Ben uh, Franklin's apologia for the press, but in this respect, the fact that there's not eyes in those courtrooms, that there's not that kind of you know public representation of oversight, is very very concerning. And I think it would you know for all of the suspicion Twain had about reporters and about the press and all of the fun he poked, I think he would be very concerned about that loss as well. Um, I think I sort of quibble with the term print journalism as like print journalism is dying. I mean, I mean that is is a fact. Um, but yeah. I think we just need to start calling it journalism. How often are you guys on your phones all day? I mean, that's the thing that that is with you. So I, I do think we need to start thinking about how we are consuming this. But to your point, yes. How how, how are we funding this? How are people? able to have a career in this? Um, are, are people paying? 
I, I spend much of my day thinking about these questions. I feel a certain sense of jealousy for people who started their careers before, say, 2000. Um, and it just seems like such a luxury to me to have had some time in this industry when you are not always worried about getting laid off or sort of keeping your eye on the bottom line. You know, when I was first starting out as an intern, I was in several different local newsrooms in Pittsburgh and Portland, Oregon and in Indianapolis. And it seemed like I was always coming in after a large round of layoffs or layoffs happened while I was there. And that was very formative for me. And starting out at that time, you're always kind of thinking like, I know how this could go and this could go this way sort of at any moment. I, I think those of us who have started around the time that I did, you're just much more aware of the business of it in a way that I think most people were not um, if you started before that time. Yeah, and I, I think that sort of calculus that Alyssa mentions, for myself at least, informs why I decided to work for CNN, right? So, sort of an established company. Vanity Fair is also established. I, I think part of our trip, uh, there, there was definitely a concern about local journalism and, and super localized journalism, right? It, just not really seeing that many examples of successful local papers or, 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 or that kind of thing. So we both did this job when this trip when we didn't have jobs lined up afterwards too. So I, I remember kind of fantasizing about like, oh well, can I do? Can I just do this? Can I just get paid to do what we're doing now as a as a full time job? Because uh, you know, I recognize now looking back that it was such a privilege to have that huge chunk of time to just meet people, and, you know, and interview Americans and, and travel the whole country. It's, it's a massive privilege. I utterly agree with Alyssa that we should not fetishize the medium. There, there is nothing inherently preferable about a newspaper that is churned out every day uh, on a broadsheet. But I do want to follow up with the question, you know, if this is a period of sort of technological disruption, which it, it certainly is, and, and Twain's career in the newspaper industry was produced by a previous period of technological disruption and the emergence of the penny press, in what way do we replace the roles that Lauren identifies that we're losing as we transition from the, the norms of journalism being concentrated in the mediums of print and television into the norms of journalism being concentrated in internet sites, social media, short video. The, the, the mediums are clearly changing. And I would ask, do, do you foresee those mediums providing opportunities to do the kind of work that maybe is at least temporarily being lost, the court reporter, the beat reporter, the local news anchor, right, or producer, right, who plays this role, this sort of idealistic, and I think perhaps somewhat naive role of the fourth estate overlooking the institutions of power within a community. Do you, do you see the industry adapting to replace those professions, which I, I think are pretty clearly a dying breed, if not already dead? A, a billion dollar question, I would say. I, I, I see it as a problem at the local level, frankly. 
I look at two weekly papers here on uh, Living on Martha's Vineyard, Retired Martha's Vineyard. I think they're excellent. They're doing things uh, online, daily, uh, even though they're weekly papers. Uh, so there are people who are providing a lot of what we were, I just talked about earlier that wasn't happening in, in a number of smaller communities that relied on small daily papers or uh, good weeklies. But I think at the national level, you know, we're getting some excellent reporting and so on. But at the local level, I still don't see digital versions of uh, the local papers providing uh, the same coverage. And partly it's just that they don't have the people, the resources, reporters in Southbridge. And now there's a half a reporter. It's not even one full time person. How can you expect that company to provide the coverage that we once provided. So, you know, if there were a digital model, a business model that allowed them to have the same size staff, well, yeah, that's great. I don't, I'm not wedded to print per se. It's just, I'm wedded to journalism requires work. If you're not willing to pay for it, you're not gonna get as much you know, quality reporting. So it's almost that simple. And I was thinking of just sort of the details. I believe Twain was writing for Virginia City covering a, a local parade in which whites were followed by African-Americans in order of blackness. The day was dusty and onlookers could not tell where the white marchers left off and the black ones began. And he mocked white saying that uh, there's belief in, in the racial superiority. He questioned the wisdom of whites being on bad terms with blacks. They have got to sing with them in heaven or scorch with them in hell someday in the most familiar and sociable ways and on a footing of most perfect equality. Well, I mean, I love the observation about the parade. He was there, you know, he saw something happen. It's that experience, you know, somebody's got to be there to witness it. And if you invented that, it would be overdetermined, right? If he had just included the idea of a parade that was based on the gradation of color from people in the community, people would think, what a terrible overdetermined metaphor. This is too much. But the, the, the fact that he was just describing it made it news. He had a very idiosyncratic a definition of what news was. That ability to witness something that would only be believable from the point of view of the witness. I know that Lauren is thinking about returning to and revisiting this project with a, a sort of new edition. And we've talked a little bit about the sort of memories, somewhat dim memories maybe at this point that you, you've you been revisiting by virtue of promoting the book. What is some aspect of your search for American identity that you think went untold or undersold in the, the first edition? Ooh, that's a good question. <laughs> I'm sure they may have a different take on this. But, you know, I'm, I, I was and I am of a certain age, and it's not, I'm not as young as they are. And so I think just by the fact that we, I talk to people my age often, we were skewing toward interviewing people of an older age. And yet, as I, I tried to say in the epilogue, I think the real story or, you know, is what's going to happen with millennials and younger generations, generations uh, that Alyssa and Dan are in. I'm excited by the potential. I'm not saying, you know, that everybody's going to be a change maker. I suspect that the percentage of change makers may not change that much, but we didn't 
interview enough young people. We missed the boat on a, a generation or two. Well, of course, you were carrying that generation along with you. So I wouldn't I wouldn't characterize it as <laughs> Absolutely. You talk to no young people, Lauren? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I certainly, when I read the book, I feel as though those perspectives are represented through the inclusion of Dan and Alyssa's perspectives, though I certainly understand that it, you, you would have liked to see it more, you know, permeated through your subjects. Yeah. I will say that, Lauren, no offense, I don't think I need to speak to any more Gileonis who are not you. <laughs> <laughs> I think we cornered the market. <laughs> We've met all of them. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Dan and I would go do our own thing. Lauren would go to the library and like look through the phone book and be like, I found some Gileonis. <laughs> We'd hop in the car, pay him a visit. It was great. I can totally sympathize. At the same time, I would say that, you know, that arbitrary methodology of finding subjects is a kind of interesting one for the faith in the interview. Something as rel relatively random as a shared last name means that you're going to meet people that you might not otherwise find. Although you do interview local newspaper editors and you interview professors and Twain scholars who bring a sort of coherence to the narrative. I think the narrative is often strongest with the people who you met sort of by chance. Interesting yeah. point. I mean, uh, I was going to say before you said that, that maybe we interviewed too many people with academic credentials. <laughs> <laughs> Never! <laughs> <laughs> but no, even, you know, I mean, we, so we, at the last interview in the book, and I, I, I loved it, Julie Pham, you know, was uh, putting out a paper in, uh, for the Vietnamese community in Pacific Northwest. But here she has a, a education from Cambridge University. I mean, you know, it seemed wherever we went, we were interviewing people who were extremely gifted, if you will, and uh, academically successful. These people have had the benefit of higher education. It's harder to do when you're traveling the way we were traveling, but I, I would love to be better connected to um, people who maybe are not used to being interviewed as much. But uh, I, I mean, I love the interview uh, at the homeless uh, camp in uh, St. Louis because you know that we were entering a world uh, that not many people enter, and we certainly had never been into a homeless camp before. I'd love to have more interviews like that. I, yeah, I think I agree with Lauren. I think some of the interviews that we did with um, people about poverty and, and homelessness were some of the most powerful, and we probably would do more if we did this trip again. It's kind of inspired by Lauren's sort of need to look up Gileones in, in, in every phone book that we came across. I kind of wanted to in interview some Vietnamese people too, some Vietnamese Americans. I think at the time I was kind of, I still am, but at the time I was kind of really interested in what the refugee experience was like and, and the immigrant experience, especially for my parents who didn't really share that much growing up. So I thought a good way to kind of gain some insight would be to talk to other Vietnamese people across the country. I think if we were to do this trip again, it, it would be really interesting to meet some kind of first generation Syrian Americans or more recent kind of refugee arrivals and kind of compare notes a little bit and then sort of see what are the commonalities, what are the differences. They're dealing with Islamophobia, you know, which obviously the Vietnamese didn't have to deal with, but I think that would be interesting. 
I love that idea. Yeah, that's a great idea. That we're talking about the three of us doing this together again. One one thing that's been wonderful for me is the friendship I have with them. You know, it's just been great. They've had to put up with me going back and forth about the manuscript, cutting out things. And, you know, we had 200,000 words and we had to, we were supposed to get it to 100,000 words. So what do we cut out? Well, that was tough, really tough discussion. You, you apparently cut out Elmira. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, gosh. I guess. Yeah, we, and we had a good time. We went to the prison and, you know, we. Yeah, that was that was a crazy day. Wound up in the cutting room floor. I'm sorry. I know. It it happens in Twain scholarship all the time. <laughs> I will say the joy for me as well has been just sort of having Lauren as a mentor and a friend. I just I can't overstate that. He's someone that I call when I have work questions or, you know, on his birthday or, or, or just to check in. And I don't know if everybody gets that. And it's, it's just one of the most special things, I think, in my life to have someone who just knows us so well. I mean, we live together, me, Dan, and Lauren live together in a van for three months. Nobody else has that experience. If you still like traveling with someone um, after more than a week on the road, then I, I think you're just set for life. It's just been one of the greatest blessings, I think, of my whole life to have a friendship with these two people. That was Alyssa Karras, Lauren Giglioni, and Dan Tham talking about their 2020 book, Genus Americanus, based upon their 2011 trip around the United States. Earlier this month, Alyssa and Lauren returned to Elmira as guests of the Center for Mark Twain Studies. You can view their Trouble Begins lecture at marktwainstudies.com backslash genus Americanus. While in residence at Quarry Farm, they also began planning a revised and updated version of genus Americanus, including interviews with a number of Elmirans. This has been an episode of The American Vandal from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Matt Siebold. Thanks for listening.